All right, we can turn in our Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 12. You guys hear me all right? Am I too loud, too quiet? Perfect. Romans, chapter 12. Partially we're going to be in Romans 12, but we're also going to be in Romans chapter 11. Seems like the more anybody studies the Bible, they realize sometimes chapter divisions don't hit the, the nail on the head, which is okay, because God didn't write the chapter divisions. Um, Romans chapter 12, we're going to begin here. We're not going to quite read immediately, but immediately we are going to go to Lord in prayer. Lord, uh, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to be up here, Lord. Uh, it's been a busy week, Lord, and there's a lot of preparation. And uh, God, I pray that you would be with me as I, as I preach, Lord. Um, I'm not always the best at this, Lord. And God, I, I pray that uh, through my weaknesses um, that I could be a blessing to somebody here, Lord. And um, so I pray that you would help me, not for my sake, Lord, but for the people who are listening. I pray that I would speak truth um, and not say anything I shouldn't. I love you, God. In your son's name I pray. Amen. All right, the book of the Roman book of Romans is a special book. Turn this off. Thank you, Russell. Book of Romans is a special book. It's unique. Um, the church, also a unique church. A lot of the churches in the Bible, we can see and we can uh, directly see like like who started this or that church. We know who was the pastor of this or that church. We know. Uh, Paul started some churches, and we know Peter went through, and he was evangelizing. But Romans is kind of a mystery to us, kind of a mystery. Uh, we make a lot of assumptions, and maybe I'm about to make some assumptions, but they're a little more educated, I hope, um, and they might lend a little bit of understanding uh, to what was going on there at the time. First of all, the church was uh, a relatively small church. In the 16th chapter of Romans, uh, we see that they're meeting in somebody's house. Uh, during that time, there was some pretty severe persecution. Um, it's not part of my study. I just, I just happen to know this, so I might be fuzzy on the details. But I understand that, that a Roman emperor had, had outlawed Christianity in the city of Rome, driving Romans out. And that could have been the reason why, why they were in a house church. Another reason they could have been in a house church is that they were small and they were relatively unorganized, possibly. Uh, we can have a, a basic understanding that the church back then was not as organized as the church today. Christ Church had a treasure, and it had Christ, and they traveled the country, and uh, it worked. Today, we have, uh, you know, accountants, and, uh, and we have deacons, and, and pastors, and, uh, or they had pastors back then, too. I mean, it's not in contrast or anything like that, but we are much more organized. We have service times, when back then, Christ just led around a group of people, and he taught them. Um, we have uh, programs for the kids, for the older folks, for the middle people. Uh, for the younger middle people and the older middle people. Uh, we've got programs for everybody. Uh, back then it was a little bit less, less organized. Uh, and Romans, their church, might have been even less organized than other churches back then. Uh, not necessarily in, the ba in a bad way, but like I said earlier, we don't necessarily know where the Roman church came from. But what we do know is that in Acts chapter 2, during the Passover, uh, there were many, many Christians or maybe it wasn't the Passover, but during one of the feasts, there were many, many Christians uh, in, uh, in Jerusalem, and there were also a ton of strangers from all over the world, including Rome. And we understand that a whole bunch of them got saved. Thousands of them got saved. So much that we see that the early church is just selling everything that they have and just living together communally because they're a community now. There's so many of them. We see sometimes, uh, you know, Peter's preaching and, and 2,000 people get saved. 
And they're baptized that day and added to the church. And what do you do with all those kinds of people? It only makes sense that possibly Romans, uh, their church, the, the Roman church, was possibly an offshoot of what happened there. I don't know that for fact, but I feel like it's an educated guess. We can see in the Bible that there were people from Rome that got saved and took the gospel back. But what we don't see is we don't necessarily see Peter being, being sent out to go and, and, and witness at Rome. We don't necessarily see that. We see Paul. Paul, throughout his whole ministry, constantly had a desire, I want to go see you, Rome. I want to go see the Christians at Rome. I need to go see them. And eventually we see Paul does go to Rome, and he does witness to Caesar, but I don't think the entire time Paul wanted to go to Rome, it was all about witnessing to Caesar. Not that that was a bad thing, uh, but maybe, maybe Rome, maybe the Christians there, just needed a little bit of extra than what they had. Not in a, in a bad way. Everybody's a new Christian. And, and maybe, maybe they weren't necessarily all the time just babes in Christ. But we have even more, more evidence of, of maybe some of this going on and just the very fact of what Romans is. A lot of Christians, they call Romans, the book of Romans, they call it the Christian Manifesto. Uh, basically, it seems to be a conglomeration of what is necessary for Christianity. Um, Romans discusses the lost state of man. It's important. It's important that we know that. Salvation by grace, basic to intermediate theology, uh, relationships inside the church, how Judaism truly interacts with Christianity and how Christianity is from that uh, through Christ and the basic lifestyles of a Christian seems very evident uh, that Romans is a foundational book for, for Christians. And uh, unlike Paul's other letters, Romans doesn't seem to be written for like a really, really pointed reason. I mean, Paul does have other books like, like Hebrews, where it is just written to a group of people, and it's not for a very specific reason, but like Corinthians. Corinthians is written because there's immorality in the church. Corinthians is written because uh, there's some sexual immorality. Corinthians is written because it seems that a group of them had said, hey, I'm a convert from Paul. And another group had said, hey, I'm a convert from Apollos. And some of them said, I'm from Peter. And they all grouped off and, you know, fought, uh, fought over who baptized who and how that makes us better than the other group. Uh, and there are specific reasons. But Paul doesn't really go into a whole lot of detail. There's, there's never a point where Paul says, hey, this is going on in your church and it needs to stop. Hey, I'm writing this letter to say I appreciate you for doing this and that and that. But it seems to just be a collection of theological thoughts that seem to be really foundational to who we are as Christians. And there doesn't seem to be a specific happening in Rome that Paul is writing this about. A lot of times we uh, treat Romans differently. Have you guys gotten the sense that we treat Romans a little bit differently than other books of the Bible? We, we do. And it's not necessarily for a bad reason. It being the Christian, the Christian manifesto, it's conglomeration of the fundamentals of Christianity. It's important. And those things don't necessarily make it more true than other portions of the Bible, but I think I'm comfortable in saying that they make them more urgent. That maybe if you don't quite understand salvation by grace, you shouldn't really be thinking about, you know, false prophets and, you know, you, you shouldn't be, not that that's not important. But we're dealing with the fundamentals, with the basics here. Uh, fundamentalism, I think, a little bit has been misrepresented and taken uh, in, a, in a direction that 
it wasn't supposed to go. You know, all of us are fundamentalists. All of us are. When I think, when we say fundamentalist, when we say that, each of us means something specific. And it's normally derogatory. But all of us are fundamentalists. The difference is that not all of us have the same fundamentals. There are certain things, truths in each of our life that are unwavering, cannot be moved. That if all else fails, this is still true. And we ought to have that as Christians. And uh, that term has been hijacked a little bit. Um, let, me, let me say this before I go on, is that just because something is true doesn't in and of itself make it a fundamental. Something being fundamental or not does not have any bearing on the value of, of truth. For instance, the sky is blue. Go outside right now. But guess what? If the sky turns pink, I'm not burning my Bible. I don't need the sky to be blue in order for me to be a Christian. It's not fundamental to my Christian faith. And we ought to do a better job of recognizing what is fundamental to our walk with God. Um, some people make uh, the mistake of saying certain things, and, and uh, they say true things, but they mislabel them as fundamentals. Like, if somebody came out and proved evolution were true, I'd burn my Bible tomorrow. Well, if evolution was true, it doesn't mean that Christ didn't die for my sins. That has no comment on how true a six-day creation is. I trust God that the earth was created in six days. I have no doubt in my mind that's true. But if somebody were to show me irrevocable evidence of the opposite of that, I would still have my faith in Christ. Because a six-day creation isn't really fundamental to the fact that God came down and saved me by his grace. That God sent his son. I think true fundamentals, and, and this is a list, and you know, it's not limited to this, but here's a few that we should consider. Um, the deity of Christ is a fundamental. If you believe that Christ is not God, you cannot be a Christian. If somebody were to prove to you, if somebody were to prove to me, and this is just an illustration, I don't believe this is possible, but if somebody were to prove to me, hey, Christ is not God, I wouldn't come to church tonight. Because that means my faith is false. If Christ is not God, it's all for naught. It's done. That is a fundamental of Christianity. The Trinity is tied in with the first one. We don't think of the Trinity as a fundamental, but we understand that this is irrevocably connected in with the deity of Christ. If the Trinity is not true, therefore Christ is not God. We need the Trinity. God teaches the Trinity. Uh, grace salvation. I'm not good enough to get to heaven, ever, even if I work as hard as I can for it. If somebody shows me that salvation is not by grace and it's just a work salvation, I can't really get behind Christianity because I don't think that's, that's possible. Fundamental of our faith is that God saves us, not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. Uh, another fundamental, the historical and bodily death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. If somebody were to show me Christ never existed and honestly show that to me, which I don't think they could because it's, it's a foundational truth of history that Christ did exist. But if somebody was able to actually prove to me that Christ never existed, I wouldn't come to church tonight because it's not true. But the truth is that Christ did, did exist. It's foundational. Uh, theism, monotheism, that's foundational to, our, to uh, Christianity. Of course, you have to believe in God, and you have to believe there's one God. Um, biblical authority, you have to be able to trust the word of God. You have to be able to 
uh, say that things outside of the Word of God do not bear as much authority as the things inside of the Word of God. For instance, if the Bible says that homosexuality is a sin, and somebody outside of the Bible would say, yeah, but you'd have to go with the Bible. Because it holds a higher priority of authority than anything outside of it. Um, biblical authority is foundational. If you were to come to me tonight and say, hey, there's a part of the Bible that is not true. And I look it up and it says, you know, something that's obviously true. I wouldn't, not true. I wouldn't be here tonight. But that hasn't happened and it's not going to happen. God's good. And that's a fundamental truth of Christianity. I'm saying all this because I think this makes it important what Romans says. Romans is treated differently because it is a different book. It's not written about any one single issue other than what is fundamental about Christianity. It doesn't make it, of course, truer than the rest of the Bible. It just, for our lives, it makes it more urgent. It's that, it's that milk of the word. Not, not all of it. Sometimes there are some really, really tough things in Romans. Me and, me and Casey are going through Romans together. And Casey will tell you, sometimes I get to part of Romans and I'm like, hey man, I don't know. That's a tough thing. I don't understand that completely. Sometimes it's a language barrier. Sometimes I just need to study better because I'm not perfect. Uh, also, Casey, we haven't gotten to Romans 12. You should not be listening. <laughs> I'm, try, I'm trying to set up for what I'm going to say and, and, and set up for, for the sermon here. And, and hopefully we can, we can put a higher priority on stuff like this. Because it, it's so important. It's foundational. Um, obviously not as foundational as the Gospels. Because the Gospel is the Gospel. It's Christ coming and dying for our sins. We should understand that intimately. Um, but it's important. This is where we're going to start reading. We're actually going to start in Romans 11. But if your Bible's like mine, and I'm assuming that it is, on the same page that you see Romans 12, you're also going to see Romans 11. And we're going to start in Romans 11, verse 33. And we're going to read through Romans chapter 15. No, I'm just kidding. Chapter 12 and verse 2. It says, O oh, the depths and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him, and through him, and to him, are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, this is chapter 12 now, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove that which is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Paul here, he's finishing a really long discourse. Chapter 9, and I preached on this uh, a couple Wednesdays ago, I think. Or was it this last Wednesday? I don't know. I don't remember. Uh, we, we preached on chapter 9, um, on God's sovereignty. Chapter 9 begins a three-chapter discourse of chapter 9, 10 and 11 about what's God's, what is God doing with Israel? What's going on with Israel? This is like the most controversial thing in the church right now. Uh, Hebrews has written about it. Um, Paul, I'm sorry, not Paul, Peter, even has an issue with it. 
We see uh, in the Bible, I forget which uh, book it is. I think it might be Corinthians. Um, but Peter in Jerusalem is going with his, with his, uh, his Gentile friends, Christians, brothers in Christ, and he's living one way. And he's saying, oh, you don't need to, you don't need to follow Sabbath. That's, that's not how things work anymore. And he's teaching them. And then, and then Jewish people come around, the Jewish Christians, and, uh, and maybe people he knew who weren't saved yet and were still Jews. And he'd look at his Gentile friends and be like, hold on, they can't see me with you. Hold on. And then he'd run over with them and he'd be like, how's it going, guys? How's the Sabbath? Getting your rest? I am. Of course, I follow the Sabbath. And Paul walked in on this situation. He says, what are you doing? You're teaching these guys one thing and you're teaching these guys the other thing. So, I mean, of course, if this is a controversial and really difficult topic for Paul, for the average Christian, for the average Jew especially, coming out of Judaism and into Christianity, this is going to be a huge issue. Huge. And, and this is a, a discourse right here, but Paul has been peppering in statements about Israel throughout the entirety of Romans. And it's not even written to a Jewish city. I mean, it's, it's written to people who came in to a Jewish city, heard Christianity from them, and then went back. Not saying that there are no Jews there, because there probably are. But this is a big issue. Paul ends his lecture, and he makes some statements about God. They seem weirdly specific, but they're not weirdly specific. They mean something. Uh, God does not reveal himself to us completely all the time. God, in and of himself, is his own wisdom. We can't understand it. Oh, the depths and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of uh, uh, knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. We can read the Bible, and we can see things that God's done. And we can say, God did it for this, because he said that's why he did it. I can see parts of God's pers uh, person, and I can make sense of some of the things he does, but some things I don't understand. And we need to be okay with that. Because God's greater than I am. God's infinite. I'm not. My mind can only understand what my mind can. And God, he's, on, he's uh, omnipotent. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He never learns because he already knows everything. Nothing ever occurs to him. He never changes. We don't get to base God's actions on whether we can understand why he did something or not. God is in and of himself justified in what he does through his own wisdom. Um, the second statement he makes, for those who hath known the mind of the Lord... Who hath been his counselor? Nobody's advising God. God doesn't, get, doesn't outsource his wisdom. Nobody, you know, God doesn't see the, the idol worship and the, and the baby sacrifice in Canaan and says, man, I don't know what to do about this. Hey, Michael, help me out. What would you do? God never does that. He never calls in, uh, you know, one of his archangels and says, pop quiz. Jonah didn't do what I said, what I, what I, what I told him to do. What would you do? And then Michael the archangel is like, uh, a fish? Sounds appropriate. God's like, huh, never thought about that. That's never happening. God doesn't have counselors. This the, the, the third statement he makes, verse 35, or who has given, this seems weirdly specific, but it is meaningful, who ha has first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. God doesn't take loans. Nobody, nobody lends their power to God so God can have ability. God is God. God is omnipotent. He's omniscient in and of himself. We call this self-sufficiency of God. And it's, it's intimately tied in with God's sovereignty. 
God's power comes from God. God's knowledge comes from God. God does not power up. God does not take batteries from somebody else to make himself stronger. Uh, God does not have his final form. Nothing like that. God is all-powerful in and of himself. He knows everything. Um, as such, verse 36, of him and through him and to him are all things to Him to whom be glory forever. Amen. Because of who God is and because of his self-sufficiency, God deserves all glory forever. This is where chapter 12 starts. Therefore, therefore, become a living sacrifice. Because of who God is, sacrifice yourself. Now, this obviously isn't in depth. Death, because it's a living sacrifice. God qualifies this as make yourself a living sacrifice, be holy and acceptable to God. That's what our life should be. So this, this brings up the question that Christians have. The question. And this is not a difficult question. But the Bible is filled with really simple and straightforward answers Sorry, for difficult and unreasonable people like me. It's not the Bible that's hard all the time. It's not the Bible that's difficult to understand. It's me. See, I'm, I'm applying blanket principles to a life that just, it's not as simple as I think the Bible, you know, thinks my life is. And that's, that's pride. That our life is more complicated than that. So we don't really, you know, the situations God plays out in our life don't really fit congruently to us. So we add our own nuances in the Bible. Well, this is my understanding of the scripture. Uh, and that's kind of what we call holiness. We've done that with the doctrine of liberty, with this idea of the letter of the law kind of a situation. Um, you know, the letter of the law is not what we think it is. Uh, we take a lot of things in scripture. I, I mentioned the, the potter and the clay about, <laughs> about how God, how, how we see the potter and the clay as, oh, just trust God. God has a plan for your life. Things will work out in the end. You'll be beautiful. Which, I mean, I guess it's applicable, but the, the Bible's much more interested in the potter and the clay being for God's sovereignty. And that he takes one lump, from the sa- one, one handful from the same lump of clay, and makes a vessel to dishonor and one to honor. And he does what he will. He has mercy on the things that he has mercy on. Um, this is another thing. The letter of the law is another thing Christians have hijacked and kind of changed to mean something different. Uh, normally, when we're talking about issues of the letter of the law, we're making the law even more difficult than it is, and that's what Christ did. Uh, the Pharisees came over after uh, he gave the sermon of uh, the Good Samaritan, and Jesus said, well, love your, labor, love your neighbor. And then the Pharisees came in with their letter of the law stuff and then said, oh, well, who is my labor, my neighbor? And then God recognized that as, oh, that's a letter of the law issue. Well, love your neighbor as yourself. They're trying to be like, oh, well, let's get specific about it. Let's be specific about what the Bible says, about what you say. The people next to me in my house, God said, no. It's not the letter of the law. It's the spirit of the law. It's everybody. If you're next to them, if you're by them, if you have power to influence their life, you're their neighbor. The Pharisees obviously didn't like that. And we've kind of hijacked that to be like, well, God says something specific, but I'm going to make it easier on myself by uh, pretending like there is a separate law that I'm going to call the spirit of the law, and I'm going to follow that instead of what, and we complicate it because our lives are complicated, not because the word of God is complicated, but because our lives are. But what we need to understand is that there is a call because of who God is for us to live a holy life, 
that's acceptable to God. And we need to understand that there is an issue between letter and the spirit of the law, but there are things that we're expected to do and be as Christians. It's important. The Bible defines holiness. It's not a question. And many people uh, will have you wondering that there's this really philosophical, biblical search for what is holiness. What does it mean to be more Christ-like? But God defines it very easily. And we're going to turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1. And I'm, and, I'm, and I'm calling on you guys to do something that I need to do in this too. And that is remove the complications from your life for today. Remove that from yourself, and let's just let's just put our life on a dinner plate, and let's apply the word of God hypothetically to it, and see what it looks like. Let's stop pretending like our lives are too complicated to be affected by the word of God, and let's just in our mind here play out our life if we truly did follow it, and pretended like the Bible was right about us, and that God is in fact correct. First Peter chapter one. We're going to look at verse thirteen through fifteen. Wherefore. Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, uh, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts of your flesh, but be, uh, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Simple. Holiness, in a sloppy sense that we define it, is just being a good person. But the Bible defines it as exhibiting the morality of God. And we have the morality of God, right? And contrary to popular belief, God's morality and what the Bible says about it is not just contained in the New Testament. It's actually in the Old Testament as well. One of the, one of the greatest examples of this uh, is the Ten Commandments. God exhibits, hey, this is my character. This is holiness. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't commit adultery. Don't make any graven images. Don't have any gods before me. That's not in and of itself everything that is the holiness of God, but we understand that if it's God's character, it is holy. Therefore, we ought to be trying to exhibit those things. There is a life that is acceptable to God. There is a walk. It's not fluid. It's not... I know this is offensive to a lot of people, but it is, in fact, a one-size-fits-all. We're obsessed in today's culture with, with uh, you know, sizing Christianity to ourselves, with custom everything. Um, it's not a one-size-fits-all. It is a one-size-fits-all. God has expectations. There are not multiple gods. Therefore, there's only one standard of morality. Nothing else makes sense. If, if morality, if being holy was not one size fits all, if this makes sense now, I wouldn't be here tonight. Because that is a fundamental of our faith. That there is one holiness. And that what is right and wrong for me is right and wrong for you. And what is right and wrong for you is in fact right and wrong for you. There's no grayness with God. There's grayness with us. And that's where we pretend that our lives are too nuanced for God. And we've pretended that we've weaved through issues like liberty and, and, um, and letter of the law arguments. We've taken the Bible and, and we've 
and we've nuanced it so that it just fits our lives. And in the end, we're not even really following the Bible. We're just kind of following our vague interpretation of what it wants from us. Um, and uh, you're not more complex than God. I'm not more complex than God. I don't have a better understanding of my life than God does. There's a pride that comes in trying to nuance the Bible to fit us. It's to pretend that we can understand how we ought to be following God better than God and understand how we ought to be following him. Does that make sense? How that's a problem? It's a pride problem. Either you're misunderstanding who you are or you're misunderstanding who God is. And that's something that needs to be rectified, um, especially if you're a Christian. I mean, we ought to have a right understanding of God. Some people, they want to think being holy means to be saved. Some sense, they're right. But in other sense, if that's all they say, they're wrong. Because God has sent his son to cleanse us of sin. And in that way, we are sinless. And our relationship with God has been restored. Therefore, we're holy. The Bible says no child of God commits sin. And in that sense, there's no sin applied to our account. If I, you know... <laughs> If I hopped off this stage and I yelled at Larry and I punched him in the face, that'd be a bad thing to do, but I'd still be going to heaven because the blood of Christ. But that doesn't make what I did right. And we need, to, we need to separate these issues where there is holiness in that we are saved, but there is our lifestyle in which we ought to be trying to achieve holiness. But some would have you believe that if you are saved, by virtue of being saved, you are living a holy life. That's not true. That's just not the case. And I'm, I'm sorry if you've been led to believe that that is true. It's not. Um, understand that the Bible is commenting here on your lifestyle. You're to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. And that in and of itself tells us that there is a standard for how you live. And Paul is not reaching out to people who are not saved, telling them, hey, there's a life that's holy, come be saved. Paul is writing to Christians, saying, you need to live holy. So this isn't a call to be saved, although you should be saved. Um, we want to understand that if holiness is by definition God's morality, then we, if we believe the former thing I was talking about, we have to believe that God's morality is that it's good to be saved. But God, trying to make this make sense, but God did not become moral when we fell from grace. God has morality that has existed long before there was even the need to be saved. And to sit here and think that, oh, to be holy is to be saved. The holiness of God is to be saved. Then we have to believe that when Adam and Eve fell from grace, God became holy because then there was a need to be saved and now it's good to be saved. Does that make sense? But the fact is, is that through all eternity, God has not been a murderer. God has not been a liar. God has not been a cheater. God has not been a thief. And those things are moral. Those things are God's morality. And the very reason we need to be saved is because we're not moral like God. We've fallen short of God's morality. We've fallen short of the law. It's written on our hearts. We've fallen short of that. There is more call to be a Christian than to just be saved. Understand that Christ, even Christ knew this. He said that he who sets out to build counts the cost. It's free to become a Christian. It's free to get saved. But understand that if we are to live our life for Christ, we are to become a living sacrifice. What's to come is so much better. 
We have an eternity in heaven with Christ. That's amazing. I understand here on earth, by our standards, it might be tough. It's tough. Or to be a living sacrifice. We must come to grips with that. You you cannot <clears throat> you cannot be a follower of Christ and think it's important to preserve yourself. And I want to say this without giving off the wrong the wrong impression, but I don't matter. There's a lot of personality to me. I like Star Wars. I like this. I like that. You know, I have my favorite restaurants. Um, I don't like being in trouble. I mean, you guys have a lot of personality to you. Even even the person in the room with the least personality, there's still a lot of nuances to who they are. But we have to stop considering that important. And that's the very essence of what it means to be, be a sacrifice. To realize that for the cause of Christ, these things no longer take precedence. Um, you do this every single time. You wake up on Sunday and say, I don't really feel like going to church. Um, but I'm going to do it. Russell, how far do you live from church? Tim, how far do you live from church? Now, in your guys' own personality, does it make sense to you to burn that much gas at gas prices right now? No, not really. That's a lot. I wouldn't want to do it, but realize that that part of who we are just, it goes by the wayside because what Christ has asked us to do takes precedence. Being holy takes precedence. And in that, they've become a living sacrifice. The things that God has asked them to do has become more important than what they'd feel like doing. I live 25 minutes down the street. <laughs> not an hour, not an hour and a half. Sometimes I wake up in the morning and I say, hey, I really don't feel like going to church. I just don't. Um, because if you are a person on earth, you don't wake up every Sunday going, oh, can't wait to go. We all, at least, even pastors, you know, they don't always want to go to church. They want a day where they can just not worry about it, you know. I'm sure pastor, he's in Georgia right now. He's at a church, and he doesn't have to preach. He doesn't really know a whole lot of people there other than his dad. I'm sure it's like going on vacation. We don't always want to do what's right. But the fact is, is that we're not called to do what we always want to do. We're not called to be anything other than a living sacrifice for God. And it's great when the things that are ourselves line up and are allowed in our lives in the light of what Christ wants us to be. Because not everything about our personality is wrong. I like Mexican food. When I go to a Mexican restaurant, God isn't unhappy with me. He says, you're supposed to be a living sacrifice. But you went to a Mexican restaurant. That's not very sacrificial of you. No, God's not doing that. But we need to understand that what God wants out of our life takes precedence. We all have our personality. We all have who we are. Um, but that's not important in our life compared to how important it is that we follow Christ. It's just not. How much money we make, doesn't matter. You can get rich here on earth, but, I mean, compared to eternity, it doesn't really matter that much. And I know it's hard to, to legitimately grasp and believe that we're going to be existing for an eternity. Uh, but let's just try to trust God uh, at his word.
Second thing in verse 2 of chapter 12. I ought to turn back over to Romans. I could probably quote it, but I probably wouldn't do it perfect. I'm not going to do it. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove that which is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This is another big question. Just like the first point, live holy and acceptable, be a, a, a living sacrifice. Well, what is holiness? This is the big uh, you know, debate between people who seem to be less uh, you know, committed and people who, who are. Uh, this is a big debate. What is, what, what is worldliness? What is worldliness? And uh, it's a question that's not that hard. But again, because of how complicated we think our lives are, uh, it's, it gets nuanced and it gets mixed up. Uh, people base their entire lifestyle on this one verse, which is a big deal because what other verse do we base our entire lifestyle on? We should understand what God's saying here in context and realize what it means. Um, some people, it means you're not saved. And we dealt with this in the first one. Some people have a very black and white version of Christianity. Anytime the Bible says something negative or not to be something, it's talking about people who aren't Christian. And every single time it says be something, it's talking about a quality of somebody being Christian. Uh, but understand that being worldly doesn't mean you're unsaved because Paul is talking to people who are saved already and saying, hey, don't become foreign to the world. Don't be like the world. So we can rule that out pretty quickly. Being worldly does not necessitate that you're unsaved. Christian people, saved individuals, we can be worldly. So what does that mean? Some take it selectively. And they don't realize they're taking it selectively. They think they're being literal about the word of God. But uh, they apply it selectively to our methods in ministry, uh, to things, uh, to how we dress. Sometimes it, it's kind of hard to, to wrap it up all into one thing. Um, but they create a criteria that's absolutely impossible to follow. Uh, a good example is... How's a good example? Uh, some churches believe that you should not stream on the internet because that's well, what the world does. That's what the world does. The world uses online ministry. We don't do that because we're not the world. Be not conformed to the world. Okay, sure. But the criteria is because the world does that, I'm not going to do that. And if I was using that same criteria, uh, I wrote a list somewhere. I would probably not be able to shop at Walmart, drink water, eat food, wear clothes, and I'm not stopping any of those things anytime soon. <laughs> I'm very committed to shopping at Walmart. So the criteria for what is worldly is most certainly not just whatever the world does. I mean, if you're talking about just a blanket sense of what's worldly, I mean, I guess you could say that. But in the moral sense of don't be worldly, it's not just whatever the world does. So what we're left to do is we have a task to redefine the word worldly in a biblical way. I wrote something down here, and I hope this makes sense. It says, worldliness is any attribute of man that is ontologically present due to God being absent in their life. The world has certain behaviors, and they do those things not just because they're people, but they do those things because there's a lack of God in their life. And this 
lends itself to, to talk about specific things, you know. Uh, there's a propensity to sin. That is worldly. If you typically just kind of like don't think a lot about the laws of God and morality and you're willing to just kind of go forward, uh, that's worldliness. Um, self-serving. As Christians, what are we supposed to be doing? Loving one another. Um, the Bible talks about uh, the whole prayers and thoughts issue where if uh, a brother comes to you and says, hey, I need bread, I need blankets. And if you say to them, go in peace, without giving them the actual needs, then you've done something wrong. There's supposed to be a sacrificial love between, between us where, hey, Casey, if you need something, I should be loving to you as a brother in Christ and I should be self-sacrificial and I can set aside the things that I need and I can go without and come and fill your need. And Marge, if I need something, you're supposed to come and help me with that. And Josh, if you need something, Hannah's supposed to be like, you need a washing machine? I've got a washing machine. Here, have my washing machine. I've got an extra one. I don't have an extra one. I don't even have one. That's two less than an extra one. That's a lot less than an extra one. <laughs> but the world has no sense of this. It's self-serving. I mean, they're, they're, the defining trait of the world is that they're humanist. And that's a, that's a fancy word for some, but basically it means whatever I need. I have a pyramid, and it is a scale of things that I need. Well, the first thing I need is water, food. Second thing I need might be shelter, clothes. Third things, third tier of what I need might be human uh, uh, companionship and love and care. And then maybe the fourth tier would be, uh, there's, there's an, it's an actual thing. You can look, up, look it up on the internet. I haven't memorized it, so I'm just spitting that off. Um, but man, in the absence of God, by nature of them not having God, they don't care about anything really but themselves. I mean, that's why people in history and people even nowadays are willing to say, I don't get a love and uh, attention from women, um, so I am going to become a serial killer. Uh, <laughs> that's why rulers in history are willing to kill massive amounts of people in order to literally get rich. Uh, Muhammad, the founder of Islam, was able to gather a massive amount of, I think, Bedouin tribes that didn't really have one leader and go through and conquer a large amount of area just because money, power. He copied from other people's religion. That's why a good portion of the Quran sounds a lot like Torah because he was trying to enlist people into his organization in order so that he could say, hey, we have the same God. Why don't you come join me? And we're doing this. And look at all this money. You know, people are willing to go through the most ridiculous things in order to preserve themselves. And it goes all the way from doing things that are ridiculous all the way down to just the little things in life where you, you really just don't, you're not interested in going out of your way to serve other people. You know, it, there's a criteria things have to meet. Well, if I'm going to help somebody, then it can't be damaging to me. Obviously, the gas to get over to your place to help you with this, that's tough. I really can't afford the gas. Um, but the Christian perspective in life is kind of like, so what? Just do it. Just help out. Uh, that's worldliness. Um, driven by comfort, which is attached to the last thing, that we're more concerned with comfort. We're working for the weekend, right? Um, we're more concerned with comfort uh, rather than just pushing through and getting done what we're supposed to be getting done uh, and having some mental fortitude and following Christ. Um, willing to set morals aside to achieve what they want or need. That's a big one, and that's, that's a large list. 
point is from today is that there there is an expected lifestyle for you and me. Um, and I'm not, I mean, literally I'm talking down to you guys, but there are many people. Um, now I can't look at anybody in here that are much more holy people than me. In fact, I wouldn't even consider myself like the shining example in any way of like a good person. I'm just not. I, I, I know my Bible pretty well, but I mean the Bible really specifically qualifies that as doesn't matter if you're not going to be a good person, you know, a good Christian. Um, and I, I can only hope to be a blessing to you guys. But I really don't want this to come from somewhere, you know, I really want this to come from the right place, and I don't want you guys to think this is coming from the wrong place. But there's an expectation set. There's an expectation set in our life. We're expected to do things. We ought to be living our lives to a standard. It's a one-size-fits-all. Fits all. God has a set of morality for our life. God is sovereign. He is self-sufficient in and of himself. Um, and we ought to respond to that by glorifying God in the way that we live our life. It's vital. Um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, uh, thank you so much uh, for giving me the opportunity to um, teach up here. I pray, God, that it came from the right place. Lord, uh, as we go forward with an invitation, Lord, uh, I beg that you would please help it to be in the right spirit, that we wouldn't be making decisions emotionally, Lord, but that they would be well-informed and that we would be wanting to serve you. Um, I love you, God, and uh, I pray all these things in your son's name.